All right, our Old Testament lesson this morning is from Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. If you were uh, paying attention to the video that we were showing just prior to the service, um, this ought to look fairly familiar. If not, I would highly recommend that you go back to our webpage after the service and watch that video. It is um, a song by Andrew Peterson called Holy is the Lord, and it's all about Abraham taking Isaac uh, to the mountain to be sacrificed, which is what we're about to read about. And the way that he writes the story is from the perspective of Abraham and what it would be like to try to be trusting God in something like that. And um, anyway, somebody has put that together with a video of, um, of that moment in Scripture of, um, of Abraham taking Isaac uh, to be sacrificed. So this is Genesis 22, 1 to 14. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you've made, and God, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. God, we pray that you would help us to hear your word, to reflect on your word, to understand your word. But more than that, God, that through your word and by your spirit, that we would have life through Jesus today and forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14 the sometime later God attested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord Will Provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. 
our New Testament lesson. It's from 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. As John continues writing about the amazing love of God for us. It says, This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord. There you go. All right, I mentioned during the children's sermon we were going to be looking at uh, riddles more as the day goes on, and uh, it's time for another riddle. So here, here's the riddle for you. Do not shout out the answer if you figure this out. So uh, let everybody kind of get there on their own. So what is like a man who sowed good seed in his field even though others tried to sabotage his crop? What is like a mustard seed that starts small but grows very large? What is like yeast that works through all through the dough? What is like a treasure hidden in a field worth selling everything for? What is like a merchant looking for fine pearls who sells everything to get the one of great value? What is like a net that caught all kinds of fish? What is like the owner of a house who brings out new and old treasures? What is like a king who operates with grace, forgiveness, and generosity, but will treat his subjects with harsh justice if they insist on treating others that way? What is like a landowner who pays his workers fairly and generously? What is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son and sent invitations far and wide, even though many ignored or rejected the invitation. What is it that we are to seek first, but that no one can enter unless they become like little children? What is it that Jesus has taught all of his disciples to pray for? And what was it that he announced at the arrival of the beginning, the arrival of, at the beginning of his ministry. All right, now you can answer. Any ideas? What is it? What is it that fits all of those categories? The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. Same idea, two different ways of talking about it. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, that's what every single one of these, by the way, this all comes straight from the Bible. These are parables that Jesus tells. 
where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like all of those things. In fact, Jesus talked so much about the kingdom of heaven, it is actually remarkable that we could ever think about him apart from the kingdom. The kingdom that he announced, that he taught about, and that he brought about. It's a kingdom that is so unlike the kingdoms of this world, whether they be Egypt or Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome or the United States of America. His kingdom is so different from all the kingdoms of the world that he talked about it in parables rather than in the usual political rhetoric because the usual categories don't fit. And so instead what you have is this kind of riddle in the way that he explains it. And a lot of the things that he, say, that he says don't make sense unless you understand the kingdom of heaven that he's talking about. The way in which God rules over his people and with his people in his creation. But once you notice that the kingdom of heaven is what Jesus is about, you'll see so many parts of the Bible will start to make more sense. It's not a book about what do I need to do so I can go to heaven when I die. It is a book about who God is and what he has done to bring us into his kingdom now and forever. This is part of the reason that the Old Testament spends so much time documenting the few successes and many failures on the parts of the ancient kings of Israel. When you're reading through that, you're thinking, why are we reading all this? Why is this a part of our Bible? (laughs) To just see how one king after another falls short. But it's all part of the preparation for the kingdom of God. These kings hinted at the goodness that there could be, but none of them was able to live up to what the people needed. Because we all fall short. All kings, all presidents, all candidates, all governors, all reporters, all pastors, all teachers, all students, all parents, all children, all people. We all fall short. And so if our hope is in any of those people, we are hopeless. But the good news of the gospel is that the kingdom of God has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. Think about that again. The good news of the gospel, this is what gospel means, by the way, is just good news. A lot of times we don't hear uh, the message of Jesus as good news. We hear the message of Jesus as something else I'm supposed to be doing that I'm not doing yet. But the message is not, here's what you need to do. The message is, here's what he has done. It is an announcement. It is news. This is what has happened. This is what God has done for you. Why? Because of love. This is the good news. That the kingdom of God has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one who does not fall short. He is the one who loves like we don't. He is the one who forgives like we don't. He's the one who reaches out with compassion like we don't. 
He is the one who heals and welcomes and cleanses and makes us whole again, who puts us right with God and with each other. This is the king that we need, and this is the king we have. Unfortunately, though this is the king that we need and though this is the king that we have, he is not always the king that we want. And so when God walks into our broken mess of a world and starts bringing, all, bringing about all these wonderful things, he does so in a way that disrupts the system. And so we drive him out of town and kill him. If you'll turn to John, or, yeah, John chapter 19, verses 17 through 22, this is what we're looking at. That time when they drove Jesus out of town and killed him by hanging him on a cross. We looked last week at the way in which Pilate, uh, who had the ultimate decision of whether to release Jesus or whether to kill him or what he was going to do with him, had been shouted down by the crowds. And so even though Pilate was like, ah, I don't see any reason to do this, Politically, he didn't see any way out of it for himself. And so he sends Jesus to the cross. So picking up in chapter 19, verse 17, it says, Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. This is an interesting um, twist on everything when you are just following along in the story of what is happening to this man, Jesus of Nazareth. That as he is uh, on trial, you have the one who is in the position of judge, jury, and executioner who is over his case, who says, not guilty. I can find nothing, no reason for a charge against this man. There's nothing that he has done that deserves death. These are the things that Pilate is saying as he goes through this trial. And yet, he still sends him uh, to his execution, to his death. But then, and this is the even weirder twist, is that as he sends him, he actually has this sign prepared and fastened to the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Why would he do that? Why in the world would Pilate write this on uh, the sign? And why would he write it in three different languages? Because so it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. What is the point of any of this? Well, there are a couple things. One 
is uh, this is a way of actually identifying uh, what the charge was against somebody. Because part of the idea of crucifixion is it was horrible and no one wanted to go through that. And so it was a way of publicly humiliating someone. It was a way of publicly uh, shaming them and a way of publicly um, torturing them to death in front of everyone so that everyone would see this is what happens to people who do this as a deterrent so other people wouldn't do whatever that is. If you found out that one of the things that, uh, that you tend to do is something that gets people crucified. And so you saw someone uh, being nailed to a cross here in town and hanging there until they died, and it had on the sign above it the thing that you like to do. You probably quit doing that thing. <laughs> if this is what happens to people who do that, you know, whatever it is, you're like, not worth it. I don't care. I'm not doing that anymore. That's what happens to people. This is the idea. This is part of the reason why uh, Rome had such had crucifixion as such a torturous thing and also such a public thing. So what does Pilate write? King of the Jews. This was the charge against Jesus. Why does he write it in multiple languages? Because Jerusalem's kind of at this center, this crossroads of all different kinds of places. And there are people who are in Jerusalem who speak all different kinds of languages. And so you have Aramaic, um, which is kind of a, Hebrew offshoot. Then you have uh, Greek, which is obviously the language of the Greeks. It's actually the language the New Testament is written in. Then you also, which is kind of a common spoken language, uh, written language. And then you have, um, then you have Latin, because you know Rome. So that everybody knows when they pass by, this is what this guy is guilty of. But now, do you see the problem? If Pilate says this is what he's guilty of, is being the king of the Jews, do you see the problem as to why it is that uh, the, the chief priests protested? He said, don't, no, 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 no. Don't say that he is the king of the Jews. Don't write that. Just say that he claimed to be, because the, it's not so much that he is the king, because we don't recognize that at all. In fact, they said, what we looked at last week, we have no king but Caesar. So don't write that. See that he claimed that. That way it'll discourage other people from claiming that title and we can just get around all this mess. And we certainly don't want people thinking he actually is the king. Because there's a bit of ambiguity. When Pilate writes, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, by the way, just a side note, if you ever see the letters I-N-R-I on like a painting or something and it has a sign on, over Jesus, it's I-N-R-I, that's just the Latin initials of this phrase. So when you see that, it's not like some weird word, Inri, I don't know. It is just Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's what it stands for, but in Latin. But when he puts that on there, the, uh, the ambiguity is, is this the crime that Jesus is guilty of, or is this the true identity of the man who's hanging on the cross? Is he really the King of the Jews? And so this is where the protest comes in. This is why the, uh, the chief priest say, don't write that. That's confusing. Now people will think he actually is the king. Just say that he claimed to be the king. And Pilate doesn't clear it up. What I have written, I have written. Why doesn't he clear it up? Well, we don't know. 
Maybe he didn't clear it up because he's like, I'm done with you guys. I'm not messing with any more of this. I have checked that off my to-do list, and I'm moving on to other things. I don't care about your squabbles. You wanted him killed, he's killed. Now leave me alone. <laughs> it could be that. I think that's pretty likely, actually, given what we know about him and his situation. The other thing is, though, Pilate really may have said, no, maybe you don't recognize him as the king. But I see there was nothing for him to be killed for. In fact, I see that he really is your true king, also possible. So when they say that he claimed it, no, no. I wrote that he is because he is. Possible. We don't know. And it leaves it kind of ambiguous for us as to why he would have done that but also left it ambiguous for everybody who comes, comes by and looks at this. What I have written, I have written. Everyone comes by and they see Jesus hanging there. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. One of the other parts of this uh, passage that I waited to mention to the end is the very first line. When Jesus is going outside of the city, uh, and there's a lot there we're going to leave for now, but he goes outside the city carrying his own cross. I want you to think about the connection between what we read in Genesis this morning and what we see in John here. What we read in Genesis of Isaac carrying the wood and of Jesus carrying his cross to the place of their own sacrifice. Ravi Zacharias shared a story in 2012 where he said that he had, um, this was at the International Prayer Breakfast He said he had gone to Israel to meet with both sides on issues that were threatening uh, that part of the world so much, meeting with religious and political leaders. And on the last day of that trip, he said we were with a sheik, and we were sitting in a room enjoying a lovely lunch. The sheik told them all kinds of stories. But after lunch, they were given opportunity to ask one question. And he says, I looked at the sheik, and I asked him my one question. And then I looked at him and I said, Sheik, sir, you and I will probably never see each other again, and I hope I do not offend you. I want to share just one thing with you and leave you with that. I said, not far from here, or not far from where you and I are seated, is a mountain. 5,000 years ago, a man you and I respect by the name of Abraham wanted to show his faith in God, and he took his son up that mountain. Do you remember that story? I said, yes. I said, he was willing to sacrifice his son as an expression of faith in God. He said, yes. I said, as the axe was about to come down, God stopped that axe. Do you remember that? Do you remember the story? He said, yes. I said, what did God say to him when he stopped him? He said, I don't know. I said, God said, stop. I myself will provide. He said, that's right. And I said, sir, 2,000 years ago, God kept that promise. A stone's throw from where you and I are sitting is a hill called Calvary, where he took 
his own son and offered that son for you and me. Sheik, until you and I receive the son God has, prom- has provided, we will be offering our own sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for position, power, prestige, and control. I like the way he tells that story. I like the way that he makes that connection and makes it in that geographic location. But I also think it's helpful for us to remember that when we say Jesus is the king, yes, he's the king of the Jews, as Pilate's sign said. But more than that, he is the king of the kingdom of heaven. Go back through parables that Jesus tells. What is this kingdom about? What is it like? It's different than the kingdoms of this world. And so when we try to follow him as though he's just another Caesar and try to use him to leverage our own position, power, prestige, and control, we are still offering our own sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world. Please remember that when Jesus called disciples He called disciples with very different political ideas. Some who wanted to compromise with Rome and others who wanted open revolt. Both. He called them both. Into one group. And he did not follow their ways of doing things. Instead, he picked up his cross and he died for them. And he died for you. And for me. And for people in every one of our divided tribes in this country and around the world. He is the one that God has provided. He is the answer to the problem. And you might remember the old John Denver song where he wrote that life ain't nothing but a funny, funny riddle. Remember that line? Well, in a sense, he's right. (laughs) Life is a riddle where Jesus is the answer. And once we see who he is as the king of this kingdom of heaven, everything else starts to make sense. More than just being the answer to the riddle of life, he is our king, he is our leader, and he is the one who invites us all into this kingdom by humbling ourselves like dependent children, by denying our own deceitful selves, and by taking up our own crosses and actually following him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.